Make sure you have your Bibles turned to Luke chapter 1, and we're going to be working through verses 66 through 80 this morning, and the title of the message is The Song of the Priest, Benedictus, Benedictus. And as we continue our series on the songs of Christmas, we come now to the second song that is recorded in the Gospel of Luke. The first was the Song of the Virgin Mary and uh, the Magnificat in uh, the uh, previous verses. And this song, Zechariah's song, is different because it is born out of a long silence. A silence in two ways. There had not been a prophet in Israel or a prophecy for nearly 400 years. Then the angel Gabriel appeared to Zechariah the husband of Elizabeth and the father of John the Baptist. And the angel appeared to Zechariah to tell him that he and his wife would have a son in their old age, and his son would be John the Baptist. This son that they would have together would prepare the way for the Messiah. And though he should have, Zechariah did not believe the announcement from Gabriel at first. Did not believe it. And it kind of illustrates something that I want to, I want to highlight here in the very beginning of the message that there, there really are two kinds of doubt. Two kinds of doubt. One doubt is sinful doubt. And the other doubt is searching doubt. Zechariah would be an example of sinful doubt. You have your Bibles? Go back to verse 18 of Luke 1. And notice, after the angel tells him that he and his wife, in their old age, will bring forth a child. Verse 18, it says, And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Now that is a statement of disbelief. And the reason you know this is because, keep reading, and the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. Now now notice the, the back and forth here. He says, I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And Gabriel says, well, I'm Gabriel. And I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Because you did not believe my word, which will be fulfilled in their time. Now that was sinful doubt. And Zechariah asked for proof. How can that, how, he says, how shall I know this? In other words, another way of saying, give me a sign. Won't you prove it? A pretty, pretty daunting statement when you think about it, given that just a moment ago he was struck with fear. 
And so his worldly logic is, I'm old and my wife is advanced in years as well. And maybe that's driven out of a frustration that when they were younger, they didn't have a child. And so uh, they're, they're, certainly they prayed for a child that's indicated in the text. And again, Gabriel fires back, well, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to bring you this good news. And so the fact that he doesn't strike Zechariah down is a symbol of, is a true sign of grace. And so Zechariah was shown grace, and the angel says, well, because of his disbelief, you will not be able to speak until your son John is born. Now, that's sinful doubt, disbelief. I don't believe it. The second kind of doubt is searching doubt. That's Mary. Remember Mary last week? When the angel Gabriel, same angel, told her, she said, how can these things be? She wasn't saying that out of disbelief. She was saying that in searching for an understanding. She wanted an explanation. She did not, she, in other words, she wasn't just checking her brain out at the announcement and saying, oh, okay, I'll just, all right, sounds good. And it demonstrates that faith involves our intellect. It involves our will. It involves our emotions. It involves, in other, it involves our reason. And so she doesn't exercise blind faith. She exercises informed faith. And before she gets to really firmly committing herself she to, to embrace what the angel said, she asks questions because she simply wanted to understand and believe. And it's interesting because if you read again what, she, what, the, what Gabriel says to Mary, he did not rebuke her or just demand her to have faith. Instead, he answered her and he explained to her how these things would happen. And then she believed. She was open to the miraculous explanation that the angel gave. Now, I don't know where you fall in that spectrum. Maybe you have sinful disbelief. You just don't believe. And maybe you're searching. Or maybe you have searched and you have come to the conclusion. But whether you're like Mary or like Zechariah, I think that what Zechariah's what, what the account of Zechariah shows us, that Christianity requires you to think. And sometimes to think, you need to be quiet. You need to be quiet. The angel puts him into a state of silence. Because now Zechariah is going to have nine months to think about what has been told to him. Good news, Zechariah will believe and does believe. But the reason why we need to sometimes just be quiet is because Christianity makes claims of eternal consequence. And I think sometimes we're just so busy. We're so distracted. We're, we're so much this, aren't we? We're not thinking. We're constantly engaged. We never just sit in silence and examine our souls. Do I believe that the Son of God came from heaven? Do I believe in the busyness of Christmas and Jesus is the reason for the season and all these different things and all these cliches? Do, do I really believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came from heaven? 
that he was born of the Virgin Mary, that he came to atone for my sins? Do I believe that he bodily resurrected from the dead? Do I believe that he ascended into heaven and he's there right now? And do I believe that he'll one day come again? And do I believe that I can only be forgiven of my sins by placing my faith in him and him alone and repenting of my sin and surrendering myself to him? Do I really believe these things? Because Christianity demands that I believe these things. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who lived in the during World War II in the early part of the 20th century, was a Lutheran pastor and uh, was actually died in prison uh, under Hitler. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes this, and I think it's profound. The silence of the Christian is a listening silence. When I read this, I couldn't help but think of Zechariah. The silence of the Christian is a listening silence, a humble silence that for the sake of humility can only be broken at any time. It is a silence in connection with the word. In being quiet, there is a miraculous power of clarification, of purification, of bringing together what is important. Silence before the word, however leads to the right hearing and thus also to the right speaking of the Word of God at the right time. It's a beautiful insight to the importance of silence for all of us. And here in the text, Gabriel silenced Zechariah to make him think for nine months about the Word of God. And all that is important that the Word of God reveals And it's in that extended silence that Zechariah realized in the depths of his soul the greatness of what was happening. God's plan of salvation was unfolding in real time. He was living at the very moment that God's plan of salvation was becoming fulfilled. And he, his family, Elizabeth's cousin Mary... And the Messiah within her was all unfolding right here before him. And that's what makes the song so profound because once his silence ends and John is born, he is filled with the Holy Spirit and he breaks forth out of silence, he breaks forth into song. A song of praise. A prophecy of worship of God in his plan of salvation. And this song is called Benedictus in the Latin, and it's just simply the the Latin form of the first word in the song. Do you see it? Blessed. It is a praise to God for his saving work in history. And from silence to song, Zechariah sings that the God who has blessed him is worthy to be blessed, to be worshipped, to be praised. And from this song that comes out of silence, here's the keynote for us. We should overflow with thankfulness and praise for the advent of God's Son to accomplish our salvation. That's the keynote, the key theme of the whole song. Of the whole song. Out of silence... As we think and contemplate of the greatness of the incarnation. 
the truth of Christmas and the wonder of the gospel. That as we, the more we contemplate and think of that, then we should overflow with thankfulness and praise for the advent of God's Son to accomplish our salvation. And so I want us to consider four things in this song that resonated in that season of silence for Zechariah. This song praises God for the person of salvation, praises God for the purpose of salvation, the profit of salvation, and the provision of salvation. Those four things are what overflow out of Zechariah's heart. Let them overflow out of our hearts today. Let us give God, let us bless the Lord, O my soul, for these same four things. First, the person of salvation. Notice in verse 68, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. To him be praised, him be worshiped. For he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. And so notice that he speaks clearly first of the person of salvation, the Messiah. And he says the Lord God has visited his people. Three things here about the person of the of salvation. One, he's visited his people. Think about what would have led to, to this song. Why would he open the song by saying, the Lord God of Israel has visited his people? Well, think for just a second. Gabriel appeared to him in the temple. And after that appearance, his wife Elizabeth, in their old age, became pregnant with John the Baptist. Then the angel of the Lord visited Mary sometime in the course of Elizabeth's pregnancy and announced to her that she would conceive by the power of the Holy Spirit and would give birth to the Son of the Most High. And then when Mary went to Elizabeth's house to tell her of the announcement of the angel, the Bible says that the child within Elizabeth leaped with joy. So in, in, in Zechariah's mind, all these things come together and he resonates a theme that is throughout Scripture. The God of Israel has visited his people. God was visiting his people. God was entering into the world, into the human situation to act for our salvation. And here's how God was visiting the world in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The word visit here, again, is similar to Old Testament language. Listen to this verse out of Exodus 4, verse 31. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that they had see, that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads in worship. What that means is, is that God visited Israel, came to their aid through Moses to deliver them out of slavery. And here, the same word is used to describe the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. God has visited us. Emmanuel, God with us. When the Lord would visit in the Old Testament, that word visit, it was to bring grace to his people, sometimes. Other times, it was to bring judgment. The first visit of God in Jesus, through Jesus Christ, the Son of God, 
is for grace. The second visit, the second coming of Christ will be to bring judgment. And so here, as he say, as he speaks of the, this visit, he comes to redeem his people. The first advent of Christ coming into the world was a visitation of redemption. And so in human form, the Lord God has come to earth, the child inside of Mary, who would be born to her, the virgin. He would come to redeem sinners, not to bring judgment. Most importantly... What this truth does for us is it comforts us. Doesn't it fill you with joy to know that God has visited our sick and sinful world? That God is not just some distant deity that's disconnected from the reality of what is happening on this planet, but in His love and care and mercy for His people, He has come into the world to save us. He is near to the lowly. He is near to the sick. He is near to the sinful. And all of that illustrated and demonstrated in the coming of Jesus. He has come to us because he has come for us. But the second thing that he says about the person of salvation is he has raised up a horn of salvation. Strange for us, to, for the, that word horn. But in the Old Testament, horn represented strength and power. You think of a ram or you think of a, of a bull with horns. It demonstrated strength, power. And so... The reference to the Messiah being the horn of salvation is simply saying in him is the power of salvation. Following this, Psalm 132 verse 17. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. In other words, the Messiah that would be coming into the world, he is God's plan of salvation because he is the person of salvation. He alone has the power of salvation. That is, in Him and in Him, in that baby that came from Mary, that innocent, that frail. I mean, isn't it interesting the way that God visits and comes into the world? Not in strength, not in pomp and power, but in an infant. The most needy and the most weak. And in him is the power to save his people from their sins, from themselves, from death. Hear this. What, what, what he is celebrating is, is the horn of salvation. The strength of salvation is not in you, not in me, not in us, but in Christ. In the Messiah. The strength of salvation is not rule keeping, law obeying, ritual observing morality wearing, virtue signaling, or work performing. The horn, the strength, the power of salvation is Jesus Christ who in power was conceived of the Holy Spirit, who in power was born of a virgin, who in power demonstrated himself to be the Son of God through many wonders, miracles, and signs, who in power went to the cross and died for sin, who in power came back to life from the dead. He is the horn 
the strength of salvation that springs up from King David. And so it's interesting that the person of salvation is not only the one who visits his people, the, the horn raised, the horn of salvation raised, but he has kept his promises. That's the third thing about the person of salvation. Look at verse 70. As he spoke, in other words, this visitation to redeem, this, this horn of salvation that is raised up in the house of David, this is all happening just as the prophet spoke in the Old Testament. What I loved as we were singing earlier was the verses that Pastor Dan led us through, and some of those being the very prophecies that were spoken, I mean, hundreds of years before Jesus is born. The point being is, is that all of this is a part of God's plan of salvation. The horn of salvation was the one promised by all the prophets. And so in those nine months of silence, we know what was happening in Zechariah's heart? Because he wasn't on his phone looking at Instagram videos and watching people scare people and funny cats do goofy things. Right? Just telling you, I do it too. So just telling you. Isn't it interesting that what he was doing was he was looking at his Old Testament and the Holy Spirit was help enabling him to see that all the prophecies were being fulfilled. He states that the horn of salvation would be raised in the house of David. That's a reference to 2 Samuel 7, verse 13 to 14, where David is told that he will have a son. And while part of that is fulfilled in the coming of Solomon, but the second part of that is not fulfilled in David's time. The second part of that is, is that he will have a son whose throne will last forever. Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, who comes out of the lineage of David, and we are told that he is that, that, that descendant of David whose throne will have no, whose rule will have no end. Mary's son is the fulfillment. But this horn of salvation out of David, that was promised to David, this horn, as I said last week, was promised in Genesis 3.15. I have to reference it again. If you've not, if you've never read that, you need to go to the first book of the Bible and look at Genesis 3.15, where after the fall of man has taken place and sin has entered into the world, Eve was told that from her offspring would come one who will crush the head of evil and bring redemption for fallen humanity. We later learned that he would be the descendant of Abraham through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Genesis 17, verse 4 to 7. And what happens in Zechariah's heart in silence is now pinned in song because he realizes that all the prophecies are now coming true and Jesus is the Savior promised long ago. And he overflows with gratitude and thankfulness. Let me make a very simple application for you. You cannot experience the joy of Christmas, the wonder of the things that we proclaim as Christians or sing about as believers unless you know the Bible and believe it. It's just that simple. 
that you know that the Bible is all about Jesus and that the whole, the primary purpose of Scripture is to unfold God's redemptive plan and that Jesus is the fulfillment of that plan. Man, when you read your Bible with that understanding, when you hear a sermon with that understanding, it fills your heart with joy to know the wisdom and the power and the glory of God in His purposes of grace that have come through Jesus Christ. And so, song applied, are you thankful that God has provided such a wonderful Savior to come and rescue us? That leads us to a second theme in the song. So we have the, we have the person of salvation, but in verses 71 to 75, we see the purpose of salvation. Yes, this Messiah has come, but in, and many of these things are repeated throughout the song, But notice verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. There's purpose number one. Why did the Messiah come? Here it is. To save us from our enemies. Zechariah summarizes God's redeeming purposes. Already this has been alluded to in verse 68. The Lord God of Israel visited to redeem. The word redeem goes back to Exodus. Remember when God delivered the people of Israel out of slavery, out of Egyptian slavery? But here it is applied to the Messiah who comes to deliver the people of God. But here's the question, folks. From what? What did Christ come to deliver his people from? Well, our central enemy is Satan. Genesis 3 shows us that. The scripture reiterates that. And Satan, and, that, and that's, been, that's clear from the beginning of time, and through Satan came temptation. And because of Adam and Eve who followed him, sin and death have been inherited to all the sons of Adam and all the daughters of Eve, to use the words of C.S. Lewis. Death and sin have passed on to all of us. And so here's why he came. Jesus came, as we just sung in the this, in this song earlier, He came to save us from Satan's power because we have all gone astray. Astray in our sin and our rebellion and Jesus came to defeat Satan. 1 John 3, 8, that the Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. He came to earth to crush the serpent's head, to destroy the works of the devil And to completely defeat his power. And ultimately he came to do that so he could deliver us from our sin. He came to save us from our enemies, from Satan, from sin, from death. And so this is relevant. This is an important thing because every person in this room is a sinner. Zechariah understood himself to be a sinner. Just as much as we must understand ourselves to be a sinner. And let me just tell you folks, we are sinners of every kind, aren't we? We're idolatrous sinners. We're lying sinners. We are sexual sinners. We are envious sinners. We are murderous sinners. We are self-righteous sinners. And if any of those categories I said, and you think, well, that's not me. Well, guess what? Well, then then you're a self-righteous sinner. Because those types of sins define all of us. 
Nobody walks out of here and says, well, that's not me. I've said this for years when I talk to people, when I witness to people, I tell them, take the Ten Commandments, and the reality is you and I have broken every one of those commandments. Wait a minute. Well, I've never murdered anybody. Well, we know what Jesus said. Well, I've never committed adultery. I've never done this. Yes, but if we've done these things in our heart, if we've hated our brother, if we hated our neighbor, if we've lusted after another woman or another man, then we have broken all of God's commandments. We're sinners. We're sinners through and through. Depraved and corrupt through our entire natures. And as a result, we are under the sentence of eternal death and judgment. And here's the gospel. Here's what Zechariah is singing. The Christ has come to save sinners. Echoed by Paul. 1 Timothy 1.15. He came to rescue sinners. He came to deliver us from slavery to sin, from the enemy of Satan, and from the judgment of death and hell. That's what it means to be saved from your enemies. So when a Christian says, well, I'm saved, saved from what? As that nun asked me many years ago when I was a kid. Well, I mean, I'm saved from sin. I'm saved from hell. I'm not going to die and go to hell anymore because God has saved me through his son. That's purpose number one. Purpose number two is stated in verse 72 and 73. Notice again in the text. It says, to show mercy promised to our fathers. To, uh, to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore our father Ab- to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies, he says it again, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him in all of our days. And so verse 72 and 73 show us that this deliverance and rescue is by the mercies of God. It is the covenant of redemption. That was decreed before the world began. That was echoed in the, in the garden to Eve. That was brought to Abraham when he was, when, when the Lord swore to Abraham that he would bless the nations through him. The mercy of God is seen. The purpose of salvation is to show the mercy of God that was promised to the prophets. And so what he says is this is a mercy that he remembers his covenant. He keeps his oath with the coming of Christ. In other words, this showing of, of, this showing of mercy really is the demonstration of covenant faithfulness. In mercy, God has been faithful to his covenant. God has been faithful to his promise. And mercy is simply... God acting in faithfulness to what he has decreed. It is a mercy to those of the Old Testament when Christ appeared because all that they looked forward to is now fulfilled. And it is a mercy to us that Christ appeared because we look back in faith and we see what he has done for our salvation. So purpose two is to show us covenant faithfulness. And then to save us from our enemies. But purpose three, and this is kind of the culmination of these purposes. To enable us to worship. Now I switch the word serve to worship. Because I think that worship encapsulates serve. And actually the original language would demonstrate that. Remember in Exodus 19 what God says, listen to this. Now therefore if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... 
You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And so God's will for his people is always to be, has always been for them to serve and worship him. And so the meaning here of Zechariah's song is this. God delivers us from our enemies, saves us by his covenant mercy. Why? So that we will be his people and serve him without fear. To serve him in holiness as belonging distinctly to him. And in righteousness all of our days. That we will serve and worship him without fear in holiness as his people and in righteousness that is in obedience to his will all the days that we exist, which would be now and forever. So you know what that means, Christian? Listen to this. What that means is he saved you not just so that you can escape hell. He saved you not just so that you can go to heaven. He saved you and me so that we will serve him. In all of our days. Do you not think of serve as simply, don't think of serve as just simply of doing good things. Right? We think of service as just like, you know, boxes we check. I did this, did this, did this. That's why the word worship is important. Because all of you, every aspect belong to God. And if you are, if you are a believer, all of life is worship. And so what that means is when, when, we, when he, when he says, says here that, that he has delivered us from our enemies, that we should serve him without fear because that fear has been removed and we do so in holiness and righteousness. What he's saying is, is that all of us belong to him. We serve him. That means your actions, your attitudes, your thoughts, our words, our deeds, all of it is to simply be in service to this God who has delivered us from our enemies. That's exactly what Paul states over and over again in the New Testament. By grace we've been saved through faith, that not of ourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But it doesn't stop there. And we are his workmanship creating Christ Jesus unto good works. In other words, the outcome of our salvation is a life of worship of devotion to the God who has saved us by his grace. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 14, he's clear that he has redeemed us and saved us so that we would be a people for him, a people that would live in works and will live a transformed life. I mean, we could go to all sorts of passages to illustrate this theme. But I want you to see that the purpose of salvation is, yes, to save us from our enemies, because we can't save ourselves. The purpose of salvation is to show God's faithfulness and his covenants and in his mercy to us. But ultimately, his purpose is so that we will worship and serve him now and forever. I no longer live for me, but I'm to live for him, Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5.14. We no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and was raised for us. And so here, the song applied is, begs this question. Are you thankful that God has saved us with such faithful mercy to serve and to worship him forever? That leads us to his third theme. So we've seen the purpose of salvation. We've seen the person of salvation. But then, as he is 
as he continues, notice in verse 76, he shifts. He shifts from the Messiah to the prophet John the Baptist. And the third theme is the prophet of salvation. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. And so Zechariah's prophecy and song now turns from Jesus to John. From his Savior to his own flesh and blood son. And John the Baptist's unique role as the forerunner of the Messiah. And John the Baptist will do two things. One, he will prepare the way of the Lord and he will proclaim the salvation of the Lord. Look at that verse, that you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, the final prophet, the one preceding the Messiah to make the way to prepare people for him. And we see this in Matthew chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Do you know how he prepared the way? Here's what he preached. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was his message. So how does John prepare the nation for the Messiah, for Jesus? There's something to learn here. There's something to observe here. Does he suggest that, well, in order to prepare, you need to make sure you go and you vote people, the right people into office and elect the right folks into power? No, that's not what he preaches. I'm not suggesting that that's not important. I'm just simply suggesting that that doesn't prepare anybody for the Messiah. And really has nothing to do with salvation. Does he talk about social reform and judicial legislation? Nope. He preaches repentance. He goes and he he preaches repentance of sin. To prepare people's hearts for the Messiah. He preaches repent of your sin. Be sorrowful of your condition before God. Be aware of the impending wrath of God. And the coming judgment. That's what John preached. That's how he prepared the way. And turn from your sin and with love and surrender to the Lord. In other words, John preached, repent, the Messiah has arrived. And folks, the reason why that's important is because that's really the same message Jesus preached. And that's the same message we preach. It is the mission of the church before anything else in the universe. It's not that other things don't matter. They do matter. But what matters most for the church is to preach this. Repent of your sin. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Flee the wrath to come. Seek first the kingdom of God. Don't don't enslave yourself to all the things of this world because it's all passing away. Instead, prepare your heart for Christ. And how does that, where does that begin? With repentance. Because no problem in our existence will ever be solved until we face the real problem of our hearts, which is sin and rebellion against God. Salvation demands us to repent and continue in repentance. But we can pray for our own hearts, for our own families, for our own church, for our own community, for our own nation, is for true repentance to come. In the face of Jesus Christ. But the, se- the second thing of, the, of this prophet is he will, he will proclaim the salvation of the Lord. Notice that repentance, n- notice his message. 
He prepares people by telling them to repent, but then he proclaims great news. Telling them of the knowledge of salvation or the forgiveness of sin. Look at the text. And you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sin. In other words, John would be announcing that there is now forgiveness. There is final forgiveness for sin. We don't have to have more sacrifices or more priests because the true sacrifice has come. And that's why John, when he saw Jesus coming over the hillside to be baptized, what did John say? Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. How am I to be forgiven of my sin? Through the Lamb of God. Through the Christ who was slain at Calvary. For the one who paid for our sins. For the one who bore the wrath of God. Forgiveness comes full and free through Christ. That's what John preached. That's what he proclaimed. And that Christ can forgive sin. Because yes, he atoned for sin. As we've said, he rose from the dead. He's made a new and living way to God. And only through Christ. Can you, friend, be forgiven of your sin and accepted by God? Have you repented of your sin? Young person, have you repented of your sins? All people here, have you come before God to see yourself a sinner and in brokenness have repented of that sin and turned to Christ to embrace him for the full forgiveness that comes in salvation? And if you have... If you haven't, would you do that today? And if you have, believer, here's the song applied. Are you thankful for the repentance and forgiveness that has come to us through the knowledge of the gospel? Isn't it good to know? And how we can know. Isn't it good that we can know how our sins can be forgiven and how we are to respond to the glory and wonder of Christ? Repent and believe. A knowledge only given by the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. Well, that leads us to the fourth and final theme, right? We've talked again about the prophet of salvation. We've talked about the, the purpose of salvation, the person of salvation. And lastly, we talk about the provision of salvation. Look how he ends the song, and we'll move quickly through this. Because of the tender mercy of our God. Man, th- this is... This is, this is this is poetic, filled with beautiful imagery. Whereby the sunrise, listen to that, shall visit us from on high. Man, do you feel that? To give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. All Much of that wording coming from the prophet Isaiah. But notice the provision, two provisions of salvation, mercy and light. Salvation comes through God's tender mercy. I love that wording. He ends the song with God's tender mercy. Because that's not what we should expect. We're sinners. We should expect wrath. And the last thing that we should expect is that God's tender mercy would be wrapped in swaddling cloths. And placed in a, tr- a feeding trough for animals. Wow. How low mercy has stooped to save us. And his language is clear. 
tender mercy. One commentator says that mercy is God's loyal, faithful, gracious love as he acts for his people. Merciful God. Unlike us, he is not harsh. He is gentle. He is merciful. He is kind. And that could not be more clearly displayed in the tender, beautiful, wonderful, divine birth of the Son of God. You know, the reality is is that this should overwhelm us and it should convict us. Because honestly, I've lived much of my Christian life wondering, why are we as Christians so often so unkind when God has been so kind to us? I can spend about five minutes on Twitter and I'm sick of listening to all the nonsense and all the vitriol and venom and hatred that even comes out of people that I would theologically identify with. Why do we have to be so unkind? I'm convicted of that in my own heart. When I think of how quick I am to be unkind. And the whole point of this is, is that salvation has come to us in God's tender mercy. But second and quickly, salvation brings God's gracious light. Again, the wording, the advent of Jesus Christ is the sunrise of God's grace over humanity's dark night of sin and death. The birth of Jesus Christ is the beaming beauty of God's majesty from on high, piercing through the clouds of darkness and coming right down to earth to save us. Those precious beams of God's light in the first coming of Jesus are not filled with judgment. They will be when he comes again. When that light pierces the clouds one more time, he will come on a white horse to bring vengeance and wrath. But when he was born in that manger, when those night skies broke with that bright light of glory, it was the light of grace coming. Because Christmas is the sunrise of our salvation. Malachi 4.2 But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness, shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Revelation chapter 22, Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. Wow. And there are two things that light does, provides. It provides deliverance from darkness. Isn't that what the text says? It gives light to those in the darkness of sin. The light shines into the cell. And the Savior enters. Isn't that what he did for you? And he bids you to come. Come with me. I'm setting you free from the shackles of sin. Wow. He gives light to those that sit in darkness. And then he gives light to those who are in the shadow of death. That in the very face of death, in the very face of sorrow, in the very face of grief, in the very face of mortality, there is hope, O person, O Christian, for all of us, for all people. There is the light that shines in the shadow of death. 
that even in the hardest funerals that I have preached in the life of believers, there is always a light of hope because this will not be the end because the Savior has conquered the grave. Colossians 1, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Have you been delivered from that darkness? And then notice the last thing, the light directs us to peace. Isn't that what the text says? To guide our feet into the way of peace. I read in a book on World War I, I'll talk about it next week, and the Christmas truce, when the... The armies on both sides, the German armies, the French armies, the Allied armies came out of the trenches on Christmas Day. And they came together for one day of peace. The opening of that book reads this, peace is harder to make than war. Isn't that true? We are at war, aren't we? We're at war with God. We're at war with ourselves. We are at war with others. I sit down at my dinner table time and I hear bickering and fighting among kids and I think, we're at war. Sometimes I just tell them, be quiet. Quit bickering with each other. Sometimes we're at war in the church, aren't we? For nothing. For nothing. We're at war over nothing. Because our, we're, we're not at peace. I love that bumper sticker, don't you? No Christ, no peace. K-N-O-W, no Christ, no peace. N-O Christ, N-O peace. You want to know what the answer to all our problems are? All our conflicts within, without? It's actually Jesus. It really is. Sunday school answer for you. I got to close this sermon. Song applied is this. Are you thankful for the light and peace that has come through Jesus Christ? So maybe we need to think about how we can live in peace and live in light as people of the light. So the conclusion is simple. Be silent for just a moment. Still your heart right now. Think deeply over all I've said, of everything in this text, of God's plan of salvation and the advent of his son. And as you think about it, doesn't your heart swell with joy? So let us sing, believer, overflowing with joy and thankfulness. Benedictus, let us bless the Lord for the advent of God's Son who came to fulfill God's plan of salvation and rescue us. Let's stand.